Uh, it's so exciting for me to return to the scene of my second regional convention site here in Sharit Fila, which was one of the most exciting uh, experiences for me. We had several hundred kids, and it was so poorly run <laughs> that it's amazing that we survived as an organization. You know? um, I forgot to order the pizza. There's only one pizza place in Sabra's Pizza, over Shalom. And uh, I called them up on Friday, and I said, I need like, you know, 30 pies. They said, we don't take orders on Friday, only in-store. So the whole convention walked down the street, and everybody walked in, and I said, two slices and a Coke, two slices and a Coke, two slices and a Coke. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was interesting. But, uh, and then uh, Joe Werfel, um, who was my assistant director, and now is famous on YouTube um, for his uh, dramatic uh, presentation, um, he, uh, he, the person who was supposed to get the food forgot to bring the food to the entire convention. And this was Memorial Day weekend. So, if you know Joe, he's about six, eight, you know, and he sits down on the stoop, puts his heads in his hands, and says, that's it, we're finished, we have no food. I said, Joe, you have to go to Mealmont in Queens and get the food. He goes, it's Memorial Day weekend, it's the Vanguard Express, I'll never make it back. I said, Joe, you gotta do it, you gotta go. And off he goes, you know. In the meantime, Shaitila uh, had another building that was left unlocked through somebody's negligence. And so I ran down there and said, somebody come. So there was nobody here, because Joe was somewhere in the Van Wick, and I was in this abandoned building, and there was nobody around. And when I came back, the youth director um, was trying to do the housing, but he didn't have the housing list. And I came back, and I was, you know, more of, uh, I had more stature than I have today, <laughs> those who will recall. And he lifted me up in the air, which is not an easy accomplishment, you know. And he says to me, where's the housing list? And I said, Joe has it. <laughs> but it all worked out. Oh, Hashem. There's a certain malach that watches over NCSY to make sure that, you know, in spite of our best efforts, we're successful, you know. And, uh, and Baruch Hashem, the Paris that NCSY enjoyed not only during my tenure, you know, but during the regional directors who came before me and after me, um, is, uh, is the stuff of legend. It's absolutely amazing. And we grow up. I, well, some of us grew up, not all of us. I'm thinking of particular people in the room right now as I'm speaking. But uh, we didn't all grow up. Some of us maintained that childlike innocence, uh, which other people will refer to as immaturity. And, uh, you know, there's, you know, we're, we're still out there. We're still out there doing so many of the things that we did. And, uh, and the accomplishments continue, and the payers continue, and children and grandchildren. And you see, you know, all the effect that people gave. And, and it was, any of the regional directors will tell you, it's no one person. I remember when I came here in, uh, to Long Island, I was in Los Angeles. I want to take a moment just to talk about myself. Um, something I hardly get an opportunity to do. Amen. I was once speaking at an Amen uh, conference, me and Pesach Kron. Pesach Kron spoke for 45 minutes. I got up, made a bracha, everyone answered Amen. I said, I'm done. I said, I'm done. Thank you. In any event, so... Uh, 
reminds me of another story, but I can't tell now. <laughs> we'll just go from thing to thing. But anyway, um, but uh, what story was I about to tell? Los Angeles. I saw it in Los Angeles. And I, I had a chapter of six kids. I built it up to 60, um, you know, through uh, many of the methods I later used in Long Island, which was telling kids different stuff about, you know, things and promising things I couldn't possibly deliver. And it was very successful. And uh, we, we really built quite a chapter. So I was a hot property in NCSY at that point. And um, they offered me, I remember this is 1978, so money meant different things back then. They offered me to be youth director of a show in Los Angeles, $25,000. They offered me to be uh, in San Francisco, $25,000. They offered me to coordinate all of the a Jewish uh, youth groups in San Diego for $25,000. Yeshiva University of LA offered to make me a dean. <laughs> a dean. <laughs> My parents, I don't know how they survived this, but I turned that one down. Uh, a dean of American uh, uh, University, you know, and that was for $20,000. And, you know, and I turned that down to become Long Island director for 10. Because as my parents say, that I always wait for opportunity to knock, and then I refuse to open the door. <laughs> but um, but they thought it was really pretty good because they only had one member. So you know, ten thousand dollars to take care of one kid. How big? You know, I really think that's you're probably the highest paid guy in the business. You know, what I mean? so I came in. Now, you know, just the, the history. You know, Jesse Lee was here. Jesse Lee started the region. He was director for one year. Thank you very much. And then Teddy Gross did it for one year, and then um, Perry and Debbie Fish, should have a Schlema, they did it for the next two years. And then the next two years, they went through five directors in two years. One guy lasted four months, another guy lasted one, one person quit before he was even hired. It was like, it was a mess. So by the time I came on, you know, we had no credibility. So I walked into the community, and I said, hi, I'm, I'm NCSY, we're going to make programs, and like, we heard this already five times, and I mean, nobody trusts you, go away, you know? And I went from community to community, and everybody explained to me how it could not be successful. And they were right. I mean, there was nothing I could do. I couldn't argue with them. Yeah, it doesn't matter. These are great stories. <laughs> there are people who came for a shear. This is, they're not NCS white people. I understand. <laughs> These are great stories. I tell these stories to real people, okay? What do you think, I do this all the time? I get paid enormous amounts of money to tell the same stupid story that I told Nancy as well. Nothing has changed. Subtle. Subtle. Yeah, that's subtle? Oh, I, before I forget, Ray Marchuk wants you to buy uh, raffle tickets. He asked me to try to work that in, so... I'm going to forget, so please go and buy raffle tickets, all right? Because I don't want to hear about it afterwards. <laughs> anyway, um, oh yeah. so, um, uh, so I went around to each different place, and, and they all explained to me how it couldn't be done, and they were all right. At the end of the first year, we had 100 paid members, the second year, 300 paid members, the third year, 500 paid members, and people said to me, how did you do it? I said, I couldn't do it. I knew it couldn't be done. Everyone convinced me it couldn't be done. I didn't tell the kids. And so the kids went out and built an organization that they didn't know what they were doing was impossible. And I brought together a group of people, all of whom had similar visions, and they were able to build things. Because there's a general rule. There are always people in life who are going to tell you it can't be done. And, and people are always arguing limitations. Yeah? And 
If you allow those limitations to become your life, then that's it. Then you, you'll never accomplish anything. You know? I'll tell you one more thing. Even though people came for you. Yeah? I mean, Belitsky, the rabbi of Younger Illinois Park, I came to him. And he, I explained to him what I wanted to do. And he says to me, Bacher, you know you're out of your mind. I said, uh, yes, Rabbi, I do. <laughs> he said, good, because nothing in this world has been accomplished by a sane person. <laughs> and I told the story over once, and somebody who knew the story firsthand said that when the Punisher Road came to itself, and he went out to B'nai Brak, which was a desert, and he starts pointing, he says, here we're going to build the yeshiva, here we're going to build the Beis Yaakov, here we're going to, you know... Rabbi Cheskel arranged for a psychologist to come and visit him because they thought he lost his mind during the war because it can't be done. It can't be done. Life is filled with impossibilities. And I have to tell you that anybody who is a firm Jew today, you have to understand that this is a nace. It's an unbelievable thing. You don't know how valuable this is. This is the, the fact that we're sitting in a room today. I, I started in Yeshiva Day School, 1964, which, according to my revised biography, is 10 years before I was born. So uh, I figure if Superman can have a reboot, so can I. But, uh, the, um, uh, you know, when I went in, everybody knew that Torah Judaism was dead. It was a given that it was dead, you know? And, and to, be able to, to be able to turn around where we are today it's 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 of the flows. Everyone knew it was over. That, that anyone who had any brains knew it was over. And there were a handful of people who came to America who had visions, who had dreams. So hard today to dream. It's so hard today to dream. I do a uh, a trip Thanksgiving weekend to Europe. This year we're going to Spain. I went to Prague. Went to Greece. Um, I they called me up the first time. I said, "Why do you want me to come? I, I I'm not." Pesach Kron, I'm not going to do any research, you know, I'm not going to rewind, I don't know any history, you know. They, I said, I'm just going to say the same stuff I always say, I don't, I don't prepare anything new, even if it's a shir and it's not for MC Whiteman. <laughs> this is all I do, Marchuk, that's it. <laughs> I haven't changed my routine in 35 years. <laughs> anyway, so I said, so what do you want me? They said, because they'll see your picture and they know they're going to have a good time. I said, oh, that I can do, yeah. So we stay in a nice hotel, and we have plenty of time for shopping, and he flies in a caterer from Eric Stroud. This is my idea of roughing it. And, um, as, uh, and so I, I, one of the things I do is a question and answer. And there was one trip where all the questions were the same thing. Why is the educate, Why is the chinuch system failing our children? Why are kids turning out to be uninspired? Why are people turning around and they're not excited? We're, we're, why is it missing? And there's a lot of answers to this question because it's one of the biggest questions that we have to deal with today. There's a lot of answers to this question. And, and I, I, thought, I thought to myself at that point what I thought was the Nikuda. When I started in 1964 in the Hebrew Academy of Nassau County, I did not come from a Shomashavis family. When I walked into that door, I was a first grader, and I got a message overtly and covertly and that is, is you're a hero. You are saving Klal Yisrael. You are saving Torah Judaism. If you were bad, they couldn't throw you out. There wasn't enough of us. 
They couldn't afford to throw you out. There was a kid, I told this story over, I was in Merrick for Shabbos, I, I told this story over. There was a kid who was had her patient from the So Robert Gottesman, the assistant principal, is, is using the facilities, and this kid is outside trying to sell a screwdriver to another kid. You see it coming already. So the, the kid says, how do I know it's a good screwdriver? He says, yeah, I'll take off the door to the store. <laughs> and he starts unscrewing the door. And the other kid says, wait, there might be somebody in it. He says, I'll check. <laughs> and he goes, oh, hi, Reverend God is meant <laughs> You think they threw that kid out? <laughs> of course not. If you did something bad, you know, Reverend Fidel called you into his office, and he sighed. And he said, I know your family, they're such nice people, so, you know, you know, you have to do better. That was the message. We were good people, we were, we were heroes. Today, every kid gets the same message, overtly and covertly. We don't need you here. You step out of line, you're out. And everybody walks around scared. I don't care which community you come from or what walk of life. We have become too successful. You understand? It's a scary thing. But you hear people say it. There are too many from Jews. I can't find an apartment. There's not a spot in school. I can't find parking. Now we can afford to throw people out. Oh, Hashem. Now we're successful. You know, we don't need you. And when somebody hears the message that we don't need you, that I'm not essential, I'm not a hero, that's the beginning of the end. So I was just in America, and they were asking me, you know, how do you, how do you start an NCSY? You know, what's the secret to it, you know? I said, there's two things that motivate people, covered and money, and we don't have any money. Now, if people buy raffle tickets, <laughs> then maybe we can pay tuition for a few kids to go to Ed's show and learn Torah, unless you have other things to do with your money. I mean, it is mostly Shabbos. I'm sure the ice cream store is open. No reason a kid has to go to yeshiva. I can buy pizza and ice cream for myself. Anyway, subtle my check, my subtle no, really tried. I know people came for a cheer, but I tried to sell raffle tickets. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so when a, when a person when a, when so I said this took money and cover. I said, you make somebody feel chashit. You give them a, you give them a, a position. You give them an award. You give them something. You know, they, they, when a person understands that what they're doing is worth honor, and color, it's a tremendous thing. And doesn't every one of us need that in our lives to feel that we're chashit? So I'm describing something that's taking place in our schools. They were asking about the schools, but there's there's a there's a problem. There's a problem in Kaisa. Now, I had somebody, I, uh, somebody was asking about this once, and I was talking, and this guy says, Orlovsky, you're just negative, you're hocking, you're always hocking, you know, everything is fine, and everything's great, and everybody's happy, and everything's terrific. Just me. I'm the only one. <laughs> so I said, I said, I, I hear what you're saying, but um, uh, from Project Yes, Yaki Harwitz. He wrote an article once where he said something that I thought was absolutely brilliant. He said, when people ask me how Klayesha is doing, I said, it depends who you're talking to. I said, it's like a chasana. 
If you're in the middle circle with the chassid, it's gavaldic. Everybody's dancing and singing into it. You reach the next circle where everyone's trying to get into the first circle. That's also very good. You move to the third circle, and he says, that's the one that I'm usually in. You know, you're schlepping along. You know, and I've been in that circle for a long time now. You know, where you just, you know, hopefully it's crowded enough that you don't actually have to dance. You just undulate, you know, (laughs) back and forth. These are the ones with the earplugs, you know. (laughs) We're just like sort of going around, you know, trying to see how little movement we can actually expend, you know. Then there's the people standing on the outside of the circle trying to decide if they even want to undulate, you know. Then there's all the people sitting at the tables. And then there's the people outside smoking and talking on their cell phones. So he says, so it depends which circle you're looking at. And I added, and as you move out, each circle becomes larger because it's concentric circles. Each one becomes larger. Is there a circle where everything's great and everything's terrific? Of course there is. Sure there are. But, But there are so many people who are not experiencing that excitement, that thrill of what it means to be a Torah Jew. So I'll tell you a story that I, that I got into trouble for. Uh, like that narrows it down. But um, <laughs> one of the stories, yeah? I've been telling the story for many, many years. I, I was doing a question and answer for Rabbonin, how to answer basic questions in Judaism. And so somebody would invariably ask, what's the one question that you can't answer? So I said, the hardest question for me to answer is when I have none from people who say to me, I hear what you're saying. Torah, mitzvahs, it sounds so beautiful, it's so wonderful. He says, I have one question. How come when I go to firm neighborhoods, people look so miserable? And I ask this question to the audience, and they always give me answers. Why? Now, one time I did this, and somebody ratted on me to my Rebbe, Rebbe Olawick. There's a lot of people who say my Rebbe, Rebbe Olawick, and they don't really mean it, but Rebbe Olawick was my Bikiyas Rebbe, and Hank, uh, excuse me, when I came out of Hank and I went to Chavitz Chaim, you know, he was my Bikiyas Rebbe in Chavitz Chaim in 1975, so he was really my Rebbe, yeah. And he calls me up and he says, David, you can't say that. And I said, what? He said, you can't say people aren't happy. You could say they don't look happy, but you can't say that they're not happy. Maybe they're very happy and they just look miserable. I said, Rebbe, you're right, but I've been doing this for over 20 years and no one ever said that to me. Whenever I said, why do firm people look so miserable? They tell me why. They say, because we have so many kids and they're so busy, you know, and everything is so expensive. You know, and we've got to do this and we've got to do that. We have so many pressures and so many things to do. They explain to me why they look so miserable. Is there a Chomish uh, Gracious here? Wow. I feel like I'm playing Let's Make a Deal. <laughs> That's too bad because uh, I don't really know where it is, but okay. I was hoping somebody would say no, and then I'd say, all right, I'll just paraphrase. Anyway. <laughs> hey, this is misleading. This is uh, all five. I only wanted a voracious. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> it's an unbelievable idea. It's a famous chazal, and everybody knows it. The Yavah Yosef as Yaakov Avi Yerodeil of Neipar, Yerodeil Yaakov as Paro. I'm in Bereshis Perak Memzayin Pasuk Ches. 
Not because I think anyone's actually taking notes. It's just that my good friend Pesach Krohn said to me, you know, I listen to your tapes and you never give any Meyer Makomas and I got to kill myself to go and look it up. Why can't you give the Meyer Makomas? So since then, in deference to my friend Rabbi Krohn, I always give the Meyer Makomas. He also told me it's very important not to name drop because it's a really tacky thing to do. <laughs> he said he heard this from his friend Rabbi Fran. Anyway. <laughs> Is that a share? Does that count? <laughs> also, Reverend Crone said, buy lottery tickets. Okay? <laughs> anyway. And Paro says to Yaakov, how old are you? That's so rude. Isn't that a rude thing to say? Uh, I'm only 130. In my family, that's not so old. My father lived to 180. My grandfather to 175. I've just had a very... My life has been short and hard. Had a lot of problems. And that's why I look prematurely old. That's the conversation. So, where did it come from? What's going on? Yaakov Avinu comes down to Mitzrayim and the famine stops. And Nisim, the, the, the Nile, comes up to greet Pyro and all kinds of wonderful things in the schus of this elder statesman of the Jewish people. And so he can't wait to meet him. And the guy walks in, and Imamish looks like he's on death's door. So Pyro, although it's a little impolite, says, how old are you? And he says, I'm 130. I've had a long and hard life. And a Kodesh Baruch Hu responds, says the Medrash. You had such a hard life. You know, didn't I save you from your brother Esau who was trying to kill you? Didn't I save you from your uncle Lovin who was trying to kill you? Didn't I bring you back Yosef when he was missing and kidnapped and you thought he was dead for 17 years? Didn't I bring you back Shimon when he was thrown in prison? Didn't I bring you back Dina after she was kidnapped and raped? You know, people might argue that those are kind of hard things, you know. <laughs> you know, granted, I got my kid back here for 17 years, but you know, my kid was missing for 17 years, my daughter was raped, you know. My uncle did try to kill me, my brother came with an army. Of I mean, you, know, you see, that could take a toll on a person, you know what I mean? And the Kodesh Baruch Hu says, fetch, 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 fetch. <laughs> you had such a hard life. I'll do you a favor. I'll shorten it. And I'll take off one year for every word that you, that you say. And so 33 words, I'll take off 33 years. You'll die at 147 instead of 180 like your father. If you count, the only way you get to 33 words is if you include the following words. You have to add in those eight words. Pyro said to him, how old are you? What do you want from Yaakov for that? He says, because if you're a firm Jew and somebody looks at you and says, why do you look so miserable? That's a condemnation. I've had this more than once during my years in Kiev, where somebody says to me, you know, Rabbi, you're the, probably the biggest challenge to my secular lifestyle. I said, really, what cheer did I say that moved you? He says, no, I don't listen when you talk. <laughs> I said, then what is it? He says, I know you're living this restrictive religious lifestyle, and I am living a secular lifestyle. I can do whatever I want, and I do. And I feel like you're having more fun in life than I am. And I said, 
kills you, doesn't it? <laughs> so that's right, loser. Torah Jews have the party, you understand? You guys are nothing, you know? And you can't say that. You have to mean it. A person has to feel that being a Torah Jew is the greatest thing in the world. It's a game from people play. Sometimes you may have experienced it. What do you do if a Gersh Baruch comes to you and says you have one day off? One day off. Uh, it won't be in the video they show at the end of your life. There won't be any Tim Tum Halev. Nobody will ever know about it. It'll be completely off the record. You can one day do whatever you want. If the answer is not, I would do just what I'm doing now, then there's something wrong with your yadas. I'm fantasizing about something else. Why wouldn't I want what I want? Yeah? I married 33 years. My wife thanked me for 31 of the best years of her life. I said, we're married 33. She says, the first two, you know. But anyway, but, uh, you know, let's say my wife said to me, you know, I know it's hard being married, so many obligations. Tomorrow you're off. You don't have to talk to me. You don't have to pretend that you're married to me, you know. I would be so hurt. If you, if you, if you love somebody and you care about somebody, why would you want to lose out on that? If you love the Kaddish Baruch if it was something beautiful, it was something great, why would you miss out on it? When I used to teach, um, people would come, someone would say, I'm sorry I missed your class. I said, what are you apologizing for? If I'm giving away free pizza, giving away free ice cream, you come up and apologize, yeah, I'm so sorry I missed you know, the free pizza you were giving out. You lost out. I don't look at it as you offended me. I, I look at it as this is an unbelievable opportunity. What a great chance that we have. So those of you who were in my class will remember the horror files. I, I have collected horrible stories over the years, uh, usually ones that I've had personal involvement with, some of which I've caused. And um, I've put them all together in what I call my horror files. Someone asked me once, why don't you publish them? And I said, I don't need people killing themselves en masse. They're just terrible stories. So, um, so this is from my horror finals. Um, I had these two girls from the Bay Rishalayim over my house for a, uh, for a Shabbos meal. And I said to them, where do you girls usually eat out? They said, we don't. We usually stay in. And I said, why? They said, because it's too painful to eat out from families. I said, why? They said, because you come in and when they find out that we weren't from, they say, wow, did you ever eat this? Did you ever do that? Did you ever go here? Like they want to live vicariously through us, all of the terrible things that we've turned our backs on? It disgusts us. But why, why do we feel that way? Where is that coming from? Where is that sense? Rabbi Avram, Rabbi Avram, Dr. Dr. Rabbi Dr. Avram Tversky, I think that's the right word. Yeah. Um, he said, I only wrote one book, but I wrote it 30 times, you know? So I, I have many different shiurim, but I guess it really comes down to the same essential you study. You know? And, that, and that's the following. Why aren't people thrilled? What is the lack of happiness and, and, and delight? And I think it is essentially part of our chinuch system that we are taught to believe 
that HaKadosh Baruch Hu does not like us. I ask people, do you think HaKadosh Baruch Hu loves you? So some people can say yes. Because they know they're supposed to. Otherwise they'll get into trouble. So I say, yes, Hashem loves you. No. I say, do you think Hashem likes you? That's a little harder. I'm going to practice that answer. And then I follow it up. I said, do you think HaKadosh Baruch Hu is impressed with you? No. Not impressed? No. HaKadosh Baruch Hu will wait for me until the last day to see whether or not I do tshuva, and if not, then he will cast me into the pit of hell out of love <laughs> so that I will have a tikkun so that I can go to Olam Haba and float around in some kind of light that I have no idea what that is. And this is mainstream. People say to me, you're exaggerating. I was in a yeshiva, I won't mention where. A prominent yeshiva. And um, I was having a winter's mind. It was, I don't know, I was falling out of things. It was one of those long winter's minds that were like three or four others that year. I don't know how it happened. You know? <laughs> I think we were doing Yavamas, the Masechta that never ends, you know. I mean, it was just dragging on, and I, you know, got depressed, you know, and developed Ferris Bueller symptoms, you know. I think it's mono. I don't know why it's not showing up in the blood test, you know. You take the bed, you know, and you feel sorry for yourself. And then one of my band came by to give me you do it. He saw that I was down. He says, David, come on, you have to get up. I said, Rebbe, what's the point? I'm just going to go to Ganem anyway. He said, that's true. <laughs> but he saw that I was down, so he wanted to cheer me up. So he said the following, focus on the following. At 350 degrees, you bake, but at 400, you burn. Boy, did I feel better. <laughs> that meant that if I dabbed three times a day, and I did everything I was supposed to do, and I really learned well, at the end, I would just bake. <laughs> I once put together, I was speaking in the yeshiva, and it, fell, it brought me in. Uh, for you know, a series of schmoozing for the boys. That was about eight years ago. They've never invited me back. But anyway, but I, one of the things I did is I collected all of the schmoozing that paralyzed people that are left over from a different time. You know, um, So uh, one of them is a Melis Batayra. There's a famous one, all of the mashkich and give, you know, says in the chukosai, why do all of these clothes take place? Because you weren't amal b'tayra. Not that you didn't learn tayra, you weren't amal b'tayra. The sweat wasn't pouring down your back, you weren't amal. That's great, that's just what a kid needs to hear. Ah, oh, I don't know, I'm a little tired this morning. Oh, I guess that's why there's a terrorist attack. I think I'll get a cup of coffee. Oh, no wonder there's a plague, you know? Um, hey, how you doing? I haven't seen you. Oh, famine! You know, anytime, anytime I I, I, I I drop my concentration, bam, destruction comes to the world. Yeah, like a, a person doesn't have enough hanging over his head. How about the one with the mitziv? That's a great one. You know, imagine if the mitziv hadn't pushed himself so hard and hadn't really worked so hard, he would have just been a regular person, a regular balabas, and he would have gotten up to Shemayim and the Kodesh Baruch would have said to him, "You should have been the mitziv." And you see people going, I should be the Natsiv. <laughs> and there's no way you should be the Natsiv. You have nothing in common with the Natsiv. You'll never be the Natsiv. Then your wildest imaginations. I think it was uh, the uh, Brisk, Avin Yeshua. You know, according to one version of the story, he said, I would have been a, I would have been a shoemaker. 
Akash Baruch Hu said, where was all those Svarim we're supposed to write? I mean, Yeshua said, there'll be certain people who wrote Svarim, when they get to Shavayim, they'll say, where are all the shoes you should have made? You know? <laughs> now, how much, how much pressure is there on us? There was an article of the pressure that kids go through just trying to get into high school. You know, forget about to get into seminary or yeshiva. You know, and it's just, it's more and more pressure. You know, there's a famous video, uh, those of you, if you have a Goyish neighbor, they could show it to you on YouTube. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to stay out of trouble. Anyway, <laughs> where uh, these people come to a Goyish they tell them we're going to open up a, we're going to open up a, a cheder and only for the best boys and only the best families, you know. And it was like, I don't know. When I was a kid, we went to Cheder with everybody and it all worked out fine. <laughs> What's wrong with that, you know? And they were trying to explain to him why. Explain to him. He doesn't get it. You understand? These old gedolim, they don't, they don't get it, you know? What do they know about, you know, a man is the tire, you know? And so, and so it's, it's never enough. It's never enough. We're never satisfied with ourselves. There is a voice inside of everybody's head that says it's not enough. Most of the time, that voice is the Yetzirah. Remove the Sutton from in front of us and behind us. I know the Sutton in front of me. He's the one tempting me to do bad things. Who's the Sutton behind me? He's the one pushing you and pushing you and pushing you. So that you're never satisfied and it's never enough. And you never celebrate the accomplishments that you've made. And let's face it, these are very hard times. It's to, for a person to have the confidence and the, and the courage to get out of bed. We've hood in the back of the 60s. They didn't have fancy words back then, my self-esteem. But he says, in Europe, you had a problem with gaiva. He says, today you have a problem with self-worth. A person doesn't think he's worth anything. A person doesn't appreciate the nisyonis that I'm going through and the accomplishments that I have. And we, we, we convince ourselves that we're helpless and we're victims. I was speaking in a prominent yeshiva in Israel, and, uh, and I said, you know, there's a... Uh, you see that Yaakov gives up brachas to his sons. Pachas kamayim. You guys are angry guys. <laughs> Got to get your anger under control. You're losing the kahuna. You lose the bachamira. Well, I said these are brachas. What's wrong with bracha v'hatzlacha? You know, <laughs> you know, give a bracha. I said because it's the best of bracha and it's the one that most of you will never get because everyone's too afraid. When I was a kid, if you act like an idiot, your rebbe told you stop acting like an idiot. You know what? You stop acting like an idiot. When I was a kid, you know, if you were walking, you broke your leg. The storekeeper came out and yelled at you and said, stupid kid, why don't you watch where you're going? He called your father, and your father said, stupid kid, why don't you watch where you're going? <laughs> Took you to the hospital, the doctor was putting on the care, said, stupid kid, why don't you watch where you're going? And then you watch where you were going. Now if you fall down, you right away you sue somebody. Because how come the sidewalk was hard? How could I have anticipated that? It's not my fault. And you know this, they gave out an award in honor of the woman who sued McDonald's because she bought a cup of coffee and held it between her legs as she was driving. And when it spilled and burnt her and she crashed, she sued them because it did not say that it was hot. Now take a look at any cup of coffee you buy and written on the cup is, caution, contents might be hot. Duh! But we have to warn you because it's not your fault. You're so stupid you can't figure out that a cup of coffee is hot that you hold it between your legs. 
idiot. And I said it with respect, but I mean, just, you know. So look at the warning labels on a hairdryer. Do not immerse in water. Oh, yeah, I was going to take a shower. I was going to blow my hair under water. Thanks for telling me that. There was a costume just sold recently, a Superman costume. It writes, caution, does not allow, allow wearer to fly. <laughs> got, a, got that. One person who won the award was a guy who was driving a Winnebago, and he put it on cruise control, and he went in the back to get a drink, because in his mind, cruise control was like automatic pilot, you know? And of course, it zoomed off the road, and it crashed, and unfortunately, he survived. And... Uh, <laughs> He sued Winnebago because nowhere does it say you have to continue to drive the car when it's in cruise control. And he won a new Winnebago. And now if you look in the instructions, it says, caution, you must continue to drive vehicle under cruise control. None of these are my favorite. My favorite is plant as peanuts. <laughs> plant as peanuts, their symbol is Mr. Peanut. He's a peanut. <laughs> He's a top hat, but he's a peanut. He's a peanut. The jar is shaped like a peanut. It says, plant is peanuts. And on the bottom it says, caution, may contain peanuts. You know who you have to put on the warning label? Because everybody says, I, I can't be held responsible. Nonsense. But I want you to understand how this has seeped into our consciousness. I was a seminary girl. She said to me, you get these lists of people to daven for. I daven for them. Sometimes they get better, sometimes they die. It has nothing to do with me. She believes it. You think I daven and anyone's going to get better? Think that's really going to happen? We all know. We blow a hundred mega colors in Rosh Hashanah. What's the last tekiah for? He'll confuse the Satan because he'll hear that last shofar blast and he'll think it's a shofar Mashiach. Esther Penach Leibowitz, the Rashi of Chaim. 2,000 years, he's fooling for the same dumb trick. Tell him to go and buy a machsa. You know what I mean? Look at that. He goes, ah, they do this all the time. Answered Rav Chenach, the Satan's not stupid, we are. Because we don't know how close we are to making that coal the shofar of Mashiach. And luckily for the Satan, every year he's sitting there with Pachad because he knows the Madrega that we're on. And we walk out of Shul, we forget about it, nobody cares. And he says, made it through another year. Because we could bring the Mashiach. Don't you understand, if the people in this room don't bring Mashiach, who's going to bring Mashiach? This is the top 1% of Jews in the world, in this room right now, and we believe that when we daven, we're not going to bring Mashiach, then who do you think is going to bring Mashiach? You don't understand your kochos. Do you go over to somebody who's looking for a shidduch and give them a bracha? Do you go over to somebody who's having trouble having a child and give them a bracha? Do you go over to somebody who can't make a panosa, somebody who's sick, and give them a bracha? Do you, do you daven that the geula is going to take place in your schus? No, of course not. Because that same voice that tells you you can't figure out that you can't eat peanuts and if it's a jar that says peanuts tells you that your feelers are worth nothing. And the something goes, Phew. Because the kochos that it takes for a person to be a from yid today 
after 2,000 years of all the suffering and all the difficulties and all the problems in society, and we're still here? And we stand up to be counted as the people of Hashem? And we stand up as the Torah Jews and their representatives of the Kodesh Baruch Hu in this world? And we think our brachas won't be answered? You hear people with Hashem brachas. Chazal say, you know. Says Zalman. Look at the Gemara Megillah that's talking about Goyim. But a Jew, there's no such a thing as a Birchas Hedyet. Every bracha that you give, it's because the Kaddish Baruch Hu gave you the power to give out brachas. You know why we don't do it? I don't believe it makes a difference. That's, by the way, the reason people speak Lashon Hara. Because we really don't believe it makes a difference what we say. I say something good, I say something bad. You know, you think it makes a difference. One of the miracles of NCSY is the fact that you go over and say something so simple to a person and it changes their lives. There was a young lady who was in NCSY. And the girl advisor said to her, I like your hair. Now that, for girls, obviously means something different than it does for guys, but okay. (laughs) Today I'm at an age where somebody says, I'm glad you still have your hair. (laughs) I spoke once at a family seminar and I said, you know, we are Olavskis, we keep our hair. We have diabetes and heart disease, but at least we have our hair. (laughs) So one of my son-in-laws who's losing his hair, he got up at a family seminar and he says, what can I say, I'm losing my hair, but I don't have diabetes and heart disease. (laughs) It's a tough one. Anyway, <laughs> so he says, he says, this guy, I like your hair. And they, from that, they built the Kesha. And they built the Kesha, and the Kesha came in glow, and she came over her house for Shabbos. And next thing, today she's a rabbit, and married to a rough. Came from a family that was anti-religious. What did they do? They said something nice. Do you believe you can go over and say something nice to somebody and change their life? I don't mean their day. I mean their life. I was walking into my building, and a neighbor from a nearby building, he sees me, and he goes, David? Obviously, he was Israeli. Americans call me David, but Israelis call me David. David? When I see your smile, it gives me a reason to live. And I thought, wow, that's a little over the top, you know? I've seen my smile, it never gave me a reason to live. (laughs) So I tell this to a neighbor, because I thought it was pretty funny. He says, oh, I guess you don't know. I said, what? Says he tried to kill himself yesterday. He doused himself with gasoline and they got there as he was about to light the match. When he tells you he sees a smiling face and it gives him a reason to live, he means it. This family in Los Angeles is going to get up to Shemaim. And they're going to find out that there are hundreds and hundreds of people who are from today because of them. And their heads will spin, they have no idea why. I'll tell you why. Jonathan Rosenblum heard the story firsthand, he wrote it up. These three Hollywood screenwriters, Jewish guys, were sitting in a cafe near Pico, having a coffee, a brunch on a Saturday morning. And they see a family coming back from shore. The mother and the father and the children, and they're smiling, and they look happy, and they're put together, and they're just talking as they're walking home. And they watch them walking down the street. And one guy says to his two friends, you know, we'll never have that. And the other ones say, you know, you're right. And they went off to Eshetorah and they started taking classes 
they changed their lives around, they came from, and because they were in media, they started doing other media events to reach out to other people. And this whole family who did nothing but walk down the street with a smile on their face changed Dore Doros of Klau Yisrael. Think about that next time you're walking home going, and and three didn't look at this and say, I'm becoming a Christian. I'm out of here. Like, do you realize the impact that you make? Trust me, you don't realize the impact that you make. You know? A guy sees a limousine with a flat tire. It's a true story. It was written up in a book, and in spite of it, it's a true story. Yeah? And he sees there's a flat tire, and the driver's standing outside. So he says, what's the problem? He says, I have a flat tire. He says, why don't you change it? He says, I don't know how. He says, you're a limo driver? You don't know how to change a tire? He says, I called the AAA. He says, it'll take him an hour to get here. Come on, I'll teach you how. They find the spare. He cranks it up. He's an Orthodox Jew teaching a good. You understand, you know? And uh, he changes the tire. When he's all done, the guy lowers the window, and he says, that was so nice of you. I want to, you know, give you something. You know, he says, no, 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 I'm an Orthodox Jew. It's called the mitzvah. That's enough for me. He says, you're an Orthodox Jew. Let me send your wife flowers for Shabbos. Okay, I'm not going to be meichel for my wife. Fine. <laughs> Give him the address. That Shabbos, like a ridiculous bouquet, like, like a wedding bouquet, you know, uh, uh, the tables, you know, a fancy affair comes. It's an unbelievable thing. You know, the wife says, what's this? I don't know. Looks at the card. Says, thank you so much for your kindness. Donald Trump. P.S. I paid off your mortgage. <laughs> the next week, Orthodox Jews were looking around for limos. <laughs> they were actually making flat tires. <laughs> <laughs> so there you see it. But you don't always see it. Every time you do a chesed, every time you do something, do you know what it means when Torah Jews are Torah Jews? It's on Route 17. This guy has a flat tire. And so three guys going up to the mountains, they pull over, they say, what's the problem? You got a flat tire. And they change the tire for him, etc. And then, you know, they take a look, he's wearing a yarmulke, and they see he has a cross. So he says, why do you have a cross? He says, I'm Christian. He says, what's with the yarmulke? He says, I don't know. My mother gave this to me when I was a kid and said, if you're ever in trouble, put this on, people will stop and help you. <laughs> she didn't think the cross would help him. She thought the yarmulke would. Well, my time is almost up, and plus we're running out of time for the shear. <laughs> oh, good. And uh, I really want to leave enough time for everyone to buy raffle tickets <laughs> so you can send the kid to Eretz Shell. They didn't charge for the shear, which is against everything that I stand for. <laughs> I went to get up to speak someplace, and I said, as unaccustomed as I am to speaking publicly for free, but, um, you know, obviously the whole thing here this evening is just so that we can help people. That's why we're here. We're here to be inspired. We're the people who are going to save the world. We're the people who are going to heal the sick and, and get children with the childless and shidduchim for those who are single. We are the people who are going to heal the sick. We're the people who are going to bring Mashiach. We're the people who are going to change the entire world. All you have to know is believe that you're the person who's going to do it. All you have to know is believe that you have the kayach, that your tefillahs are being heard, that you have the ability to make a difference in this world. My friends, not to believe in ourselves is a luxury we don't have anymore. And if we're going to change the face of the world, the face of Klai Yisrael, we're going to do it because we stand up and take responsibility. I don't know who else is going to do it if not us. 
you know. I once gave a shir, and at the end of it, there was a bunch of mothers who were upset. And that's something, some issue I had raised. And they were saying, why doesn't anybody do anything? Why doesn't anybody do anything? And I said, I am. If I have to save the world by myself, I will. If you want to help me, I can always use some help. But if not, we're going to save the world. There's no such a thing as I can't do it. I live in a show. We're going through a rough time for a change. Stabbings and shootings. And there's been an amazing small amount of casualties. You know why? Because the people in this room think about us Jews in Eretz Yisrael when you say you Tehillim. You think about us when you daven. And every tefillah stops an attack, blunts a knife, stops a bullet. These things don't happen by chance. These things happen because the good people in this room care. And now we have to think bigger. We have to think about Klai We have to think about the world. We have to change the matzah. And you have the kayak to do it. The Kodesh Baruch should give us the kayak to allow us to save Klai Yisrael, save the world, bring Mashiach, make the world the way it's supposed to be. Because you have the power to do it. Good luck.